Have you noticed that people don't usually deal with their anger and frustration very well? Case in point. This is the headline of an actual news article. Man uses air raid siren to quiet wife. This is true. I'm not making this up. Uh, Out of Berlin, Germany, a Reuters story, a 73-year-old man who used an air raid siren to stun his wife into submission has had it confiscated by German police. Quote, my wife never lets me get a word in edgeways, end of quote. The man identified as Vladimir R. told the Mannheim police, so I crank up the siren and let it rip for a few minutes. It works every time. Afterwards, he says, it's real quiet again. A police police spokesman said neighbors had complained at the noise from the 220-volt rooftop device believed to be an old-fashioned air raid siren. Rosina, Vladimir's wife of 32 years, says she can, she's sometimes had to yell to get his attention. Her quote, my husband is a stubborn mule, so I have to get loud sometimes. So there you go. Case in point, we don't always deal with our anger the right way. And uh, what I want to do in this time together is really to build on this morning and talk about how can we take the biblical doctrine of discipleship and the call that we're all disciplers and bring that down to a specific topic that hopefully we can all relate to. Or if you can't relate to it, at least that person sitting next to you can. So just remember, if you feel guilty, just remember it's for the guy next to you, okay? How are we going to help a friend struggling with anger? Um, The first part of what I want to do is talk about theology, and then the second part of what I want to do is flesh that down into practice, And, and there's a method here. We learned this morning that every Christian is a counselor. Every Christian is a discipler. Uh, If you are talking, you are discipling. You are doing counseling. Your name tag may not say counselor on it, but nonetheless, you are giving advice. You are giving a perspective. You're giving input to people all the time. We also recognize, according to the Bible, that we counsel out of our theology. I mean, where do you get the advice that you have? Well, you get it from the things you believe about life, about God, about people. You counsel out of your theology, and that's why as we talk about how to come alongside and help somebody struggling with sinful anger, we have to start with theology. And I want you to remember this. Bad theologians make bad counselors. Now, none of you want to be a bad counselor, right? So we want to be good theologians because good theologians make good counselors. Okay, so let's, uh, let's think, first of all, about God and anger, because the reality is, as we turn to the Bible, as we open it up and we learn something of who this God is, we learn that God manifests righteous anger. Uh, you know Psalm 7 that says, God has indignation at the wicked every day. Uh, Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who would suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God is a moral God. He manifests a perfect righteousness, and His anger is and is always righteous and holy. God's anger is actually an expression of His goodness, His righteousness, and His holiness. His, um, it is a just and appropriate response 
to all things contrary to his uh, character, including wickedness and sin and evil. Thus, God's anger is righteous and not sinful. The Bible tells us, for example, in James chapter 1, that God not only never sins, but he's not even tempted by evil. He, he can't be tempted by anything. Uh, we recall uh, the, the Messianic Psalm in Psalm chapter 2, where we're called to do homage to the Son, lest his wrath be kindled. But how blessed are those who take refuge in him. So God is a righteously angry God as a function of his goodness and of his righteousness. And even Jesus, on some occasions in the Scripture, was righteously angry. You'll remember in Matthew chapter 21, actually it happens twice, once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end, where he overturns the money changers that were using the temple for financial gain. Uh, You'll remember in Mark chapter 3, which I think Pastor Rick's been going through the gospel of Mark, you'll remember the man with the withered hand. And nobody wants to help this guy. Nobody wants to heal this guy. And the text tells us, because it's the Sabbath day, and the text tells us that Jesus turned with righteous anger at their lack of compassion, at their lack of mercy uh, on this poor man who needed help. And so as we think about anger, we have to start here that that there is such a thing as righteous anger. God is a righteous God, and He manifests a righteous form of anger as the holy and right God that He is. Um, What about human anger? We're made in God's image, right? We're made in His likeness and His image, and so there, there may be a capacity for us to be righteously angry. That is possible in sanctified moments, but as we study Bible and, and as we study our own hearts, uh, I find, and maybe you find, that the vast majority of my anger, I would confess to you, is not righteous. It's tainted with selfishness and sinfulness and my desire to have my way. So, God in anger, God is righteously angry as the moral being that He is, and we start there remembering those things. Now, what exactly is anger? Remember, we're starting with theology. We we need to get our theology of anger correct, and then we'll move to think about how we can uh, minister to somebody who's struggling. There's a great little book that uh, that all of you need to read by Bob Jones, uh, uh, Robert Jones, who is a professor out at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, called Uprooting Anger. And maybe some of you have heard this. I think his definition is, is maybe the best that I've come across. Uh, Dr. Jones says, anger is our whole personed active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. And, and each part of that definition is helpful, and if you read his book, uh, you'll see how he breaks all these down. But, but let, let's just think uh, particularly about this, okay? Anger is whole personed. Uh, in, in fact, uh, you, some of you may know this, um, the word for um, uh, anger in the Old Testament is actually nose, right? You know why that is? Because when you get angry and when I get angry, what happens? The nostrils flare, right? You get veins popping out of your, your neck, your, your uh, um, forehead burrows and wrinkles, and you, you can see anger in a person's face before you uh, sometimes hear it out of their mouth. And so it's a whole person to active response. In fact, if we had you hooked up with a, a blood pressure cuff or a, um, something that would test your, your pulse rate, you could actually see that there is a physiology to anger. 
It's a whole person response. Uh, You get angry in your heart and you get angry in your body. The second thing we need to see here is that it's an active response. And and I'm going to demonstrate this in a moment, but just for sake of argument, uh, anger is a response, as his definition indicates, against perceived anger. Now, if you're tracking with me on that, you're going, wait a minute. Are you saying people don't make me angry? Circumstances don't make me angry? Traffic doesn't make me angry? Um, It's an active response. It's something that we choose to do. And it's based on a negative moral judgment. If you, and this is how I think about this as, as a biblical counselor and as a pastor. If I have an occasion of anger, and if you were to stop the tape and back it up a few frames and then go frame by frame through anger, you will see that it's not just something happens, my kids don't obey me, my wife misunderstands me, uh, the line at Walmart is too long, that, that there is a sequence of events that happens between the trigger and our actual response of anger. And one of the things that happens between the provocation and the anger is you and I make a moral judgment. If, if we had an app on our phones that could hear the dialogue of the inner man, it would go something like this. Wait a minute. That's not right. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. We're making a moral evaluation, which just as a footnote, if you think about it, anger is actually a wonderful apologetic for the fact that we are made in the image of a moral God, right? Because we're constantly making these moral evaluations. Uh, and, and if you want to you play this out, ask an atheist who denies a morality why he gets angry all the time, right? Because he's making moral judgments. She's making moral judgments. We do that all the time because we're made in the image and likeness of a moral God. It's a negative, it's, a, it's an active response to negative moral judgment. And it's against perceived evil. When we make a moral judgment, it's because we say, that's not right, or that isn't how it should be. We're we're deeming something, we're evaluating something as evil. Uh, But even if we go back even further to uh, uh, the 17th century, to one of my favorite Puritan pastors, a man named Richard Baxter, uh, I like his definition even better. Listen to this. Anger is the rising up of the heart in passionate displacency. I mean, why don't we don't talk like that anymore, right? Isn't that great? It's the rising up in the heart in passionate displacency against an apprehended evil which would cross or hinder us of some desired good. That's, that's really a good definition, isn't it? Okay? You, you see that, that same similarity to, to Jones's definition there. Okay? So that's something of what anger is. We're, we're building a case for it theologically and, and biblically. And then we'll apply that in a few minutes. Uh, According to Scripture, there are two main forms of anger. And and believe it or not, if you look at some of the uh, the Greek dictionary sources, uh, the the way God put together the New Testament in terms of the vocabulary He chose to use through the human authors, there's actually, uh, well, there's, there's several words for anger used in the New Testament, but the two main ones, thumos and orge, actually reference the two main types of anger. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but some of you are what we like to call the shock and awe anger people. You guys are the volcanoes, uh, the type of people that when something go, when you are angered about something, everybody within a three-mile radius knows about it, right? 
Um, this, is, this is thumos, this is anger, it's explosive, it's outburst. People that struggle with this manifestation, manifestation of anger like to yell and, and you know, kill people and break things, kind of, kind of anger here. This form of anger is usually translated in our Bibles as the word wrath. And the rest of you are going, you know what? I'm off the hook, aren't I? I don't deal with anger, I don't do that. I don't put holes through the wall. I don't throw cell phones across the room. I'm good. I don't deal with anger. (laughs) Oh, yes, you do. There's another word. And this is what we might call crockpot anger. This This is the person who, when they're angry, they don't throw things. They get quiet. Really quiet. Um mysteriously quiet, right? And, and, and there's like, there's ice in the room, quiet. This is the slow boil. This is the clam up. This is the person that replays the event over and over and over. And, and with each replay of the video, you grow more angry and more angry and more angry in your heart. This is the person that is, that is telling themselves bitter talk inside. This is resentment. This is withdrawing. And this form of anger is usually translated at just as the word anger in Scripture. Um, so the bad news is if you thought you were off the hook, you're not because the reality is all of us deal with anger at some level. And, and what's particularly convicting is that James tells us in James chapter 1, verse 20, that man's sinful anger never achieves God's righteous purposes. Um, that's worth thinking about. My sinful anger, as entitled as my, I might seem to it, as appropriate as it might seem in the moment, as justified as I might feel, the Bible says never accomplishes God's righteous purposes. So we have to be careful. And anger is accompanied by other vices. Do, do you know this? Anger never travels alone. There are always accomplices I mean, think with me about Genesis chapter 4. That's probably a story that all of us know, right? You know the story, Cain and Abel, they both bring sacrifices to the Lord. God um, receives Abel's sacrifice. He rejects Cain's sacrifice. And do you remember what the narrative tells us? It says that Cain became very angry, and what else? His countenance fell. That's one of the many biblical ways that the Bible describes depression, and uh, if you've walked alongside people that have struggled with depression, you, you know that anger and depression very often go together. Uh, we see that in Jonah's life, right? We see that in Job's life, other characters of Scripture. So watch for other accomplices. It, it rarely comes alone. Now, with that in mind as introduction, let's turn in our Bibles to one of our main texts that we're going to look at in James chapter 4, please. James chapter 4. And we're going to see, as we look at this together, uh, kind of how anger originates and where it comes from and how we do things about it, okay? So, uh, James chapter 4, this is a key text. And, And if you ever are talking to a friend who needs Jesus... And, uh, and they say something like this, you know what, um, I hear what you're saying and I'm glad your religion works for you. I just don't think this old book has anything relevant to say to me in my life today. It's a 2,000 year old book. 
Take them to James chapter 4, okay? Do you listen to how practical this book, you don't get any more practical than this. You ready? James chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? There it is. Do you know why you want to, do you know why you fight? Do you want to know why you have conflict? That, that is so, so practical. And who doesn't struggle with that? And James is going to go on to explain why. He says, it's not the source of your conflict, your pleasures that wage war on your members. Now watch this. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James is putting his finger on the heart issue behind people that would even go and take the life of another human being. What is it? It's anger in the heart. And that's why in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 tells us that if you're angry with your brother, you are guilty, you are just as guilty before God as if you went out and killed him. It's, it's mental murder. This is serious business. And anger, like all sin, anger is deceptive. We are prone to minimize it, be blind to it, make excuses for it, call it normal, believe it is justified, or think we can't control it. In fact, this is, this is many, uh, many of us have this approach. Uh, many of us have this approach to our anger. This is what we do. Right? Our anger is the elephant in the room that we continue to ignore. It's interesting uh, on the point that, that we make excuses. This is not new. Uh, the, the Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter, that I mentioned a few moments ago, um, in his book, The Christian Directory, which uh, Tim Keller calls the finest work on biblical counseling ever produced, and, and I think I agree with that assessment. Richard Baxter wrote volumes and volumes and volumes. He, he was a pastor's pastor, and he he spent lots of time shepherding and counseling and discipling people in his flock. In fact, if you know something of Baxter's testimony, what he would do every week, he, he had every member of his church on his day planner. And uh, he had a team of people in the church, and he would literally go house to house every week visiting people in the church, and he would review theology with them, and he would check in with them spiritually. How are family devotions going, and was there anything he could do to, to help? And, and systematically, he worked through there. A little town of Kidderminster in England, he went in there to a largely reprobate church, and in the course of his time in the city, he saw something like the whole town coming to Jesus in repentant faith. Amazing, amazing testimony. But in his book, The Christian Directory, in talking about sinful anger, he addresses some of the excuses. And I just want to show you that, that nothing has changed in 400 years of church. But listen to this. Th these are Baxter's objections. What, what objections do Christians give for dealing with their anger? Listen, listen to this. Listen to this. But you will say, I am of a hasty, choleric nature, and I cannot help it. Right? What's he saying? Translation, it's just the way I am. Right? You ever said that about your anger? It's just the way I am. Or how about this one? But the provocation was so great, it would have angered anyone. Who could choose? Translation, he made me get angry. Objection number three, but it is so sudden that I have no time of deliberation to prevent it. Translation, it just happens so fast. Objection, 
but there are none that will not be angry sometimes. No, not the best of you all. Translation, everybody gets angry sometimes. Objection. Doth not the apostle say, be angry and sin not? Let not the sun go down on your wrath? Translation, doesn't the Bible give us permission to get angry sometimes? And we see that. That's what people say today when you come alongside them and try to help them with their anger. And yet, as we see in the Gospels and as we're going to see in James as we unpack it here, that anger originates from our sinful hearts. Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, it's not what you put into your body that defiles you, it's what comes out of your body. And remember he says, it's from within, out of the heart of men that proceed evil thoughts, fornications, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness and all the rest. It comes from the heart. Now, I wanna, what I want to do is, is, is I want to dissect anger for you. I know this isn't science lab, but that's what James is going to do. He's going to dissect anger for us and help us to see what's going on that produces anger. And I hope that this will help us as we deal with anger in our own hearts and also as we come alongside friends that might be struggling. Okay, so looking back at James 4, we read it just a moment ago, anger reflects, according to Mr. James here, anger reflects a war, right? It's an internal war of our desires and our worship, okay? So, so let me just unpack this for you so that you, you understand what he's saying. Chapter 4, verse 1, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Uh, the ESV says your passions. Um, and I, and I want you to hone in on that little word, pleasures or passions. What does that word mean? What the word means is this. It's the feeling you get when you get what you want. The feeling you get when you get what you want. Th- this, is, this is what we see on Christmas morning, okay? And, and some of you that have uh, children or grandchildren, you know what I'm talking about. It's Christmas morning, the presents come out, and, and, and there's little Johnny and little Susie, and, and they open up the package. They've been talking about it since the 4th of July, and then finally Christmas is here, and they open it up. It's the thing they've always wanted, and you see the joy of getting what you want. And that's, that's a great example of it, right? But, but you know what? That that part of us that loves to get our way is actually the start of sinful anger. We love to get our way. We, we, we love that feeling we get when we get what we want. Uh, we call this Burger King theology, right? You want your way right away. And we all love that, right? We, we love to get our way. There's not any of us in this room doesn't love to get our way. And James says, you know what? That's the problem. That desire to get your way starts a war in your soul. And if you're a Christian, here's how that goes. You love to get your way, but you also know you're supposed to honor God. And therein lies the war. So anger really starts, according to James, with what we might call a disposition, those pleasures, that that desire to get my way because we love the feeling we get when we get what we want. And secondly, notice in verse 2 there, it's not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members. Our hearts are set up to want our way. And then this happens, verse 2. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. 
Now, often when we hear the word lust translated in our English Bibles, we, we think of sexual desire, sexual lust, but, but actually the word is much broader than that. Uh, the word lust here just means a strong desire, a, a ruling desire, if you will. Uh, when I picture this, th- this is a desire that has its hands on the steering wheel of your heart. This is something you want that governs your life, that that directs your life in a certain direction. And James says, when you want something so bad and you don't get it, what happens? You get angry. You get angry. Now, now this is is really convicting. because Anybody have like two-year-olds and three-year-olds? Raise your hand. Two-year-olds, okay, lots of you, okay? Now, now, let me talk to the parents of two-year-olds and three-year-olds. You, you see this virtually every day, okay? Child wants a toy. Child goes and gets the toy, right? Time comes for, to- for child to be done playing with toy. Mom or dad takes toy away. Said child starts the nuclear World War III at that point, right? Wah! And, that, and that's, that's exactly what James is saying. We want something and we don't get it. We get angry. Now, what is the difference? Now, this is a good theological question, okay? What is the difference between a two-year-old and you and me? Answer, nothing, other than we're more sophisticated at hiding it, right? When I'm driving down the road and the sign says 70 miles an hour, and the guy in front of me is doing 25, you know, I think I'm on the interstate, he thinks he's in a parade, right? He's waving at people going down the road. And what rises up in my heart is a passionate displacency. Why? Because he's not driving the right way on my road, right? I'm not getting what I want. And moms and dads, we know this. We, we want our children to obey us the first time. And you know what? God rigged it. <laughs> God rigged it. He cares more about our sanctification than that. And those children that don't obey the first time expose the lusts and desires of our heart that we want our way, we demand our way, and when we don't get it, we erupt in sinful anger. If you think about it, anger is really a warning system that we want something too much, right? That's what it is. Anger is a warning system that we're wanting something too much. That's what James is helping us to see here. We lust. We want something. We have to have it. And when we don't get it, we commit murder. Or look at the parallel. If you you are envious, right? You want something you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So where does anger start? It starts with a disposition. The disposition that I want my way, I love to get my way, and then there's something that comes along that I want, and when I don't want it, I explode in anger because I didn't get it. That's, that's the third thing there. Disposition, desires, detonation, quarrels, conflict, murder, fights. So, so let me just give you a, a, little, a little quiz uh, here that, that I found very helpful. Um, how do you know? Uh, uh, there's, there's two ways that our wants can be sinful. One is, is if we're wanting something that is just categorically sinful, right? Something that God just across the board forbids. But there's another way, and that's really what James is thinking about here. There's another way, and that is when we want something too much. Our, our desires become inordinate. You say, well, how do I know if I'm wanting something too much? Here's a two-point quiz, okay? You ready? Number one, do I sin when I don't get it? When I sin when I don't get it. Or number two, Am I willing to sin in order to get it? 
right? If you fail either one of those two questions, I sin when I don't get it, or I'm willing to sin in order to get it, then your anger, my anger, is become too much. It's sinful anger. It's sinful desires at that point. So, so James helps us to, to sort of dissect anger here. It's a disposition of heart. And, and by the way, I'm getting ahead of myself, but, but I need to say this. We lo- in our fallenness, we love the feeling we get when we get what we want, right? We, we, we love that. We want to live Burger King theology. But what does, G- what, what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is the reason that Jesus died? You, you need to get this now. It's 2 Corinthians 5.15. I'll quote it to you. And he died so that we who live would no longer live for ourselves, what? But for him and di- who died again, who died and rose again on our behalf. Jesus died on the cross to rescue us from the destruction and bondage of living for me, living for self. And, and the gospel is about rescuing us off that road and putting us on a path of living for Jesus. So the disposition, even though our fallen nature says, live for yourself, I want my way right away, that a Christian is somebody who is crucifying that and who says, I want to live for him above all. That's how you begin to reverse anger. You, you go at the heart and you say, there is nothing as a Christian that I should want more than to honor my Savior. That disposition has to change, and then that spills over into more godly desires, and then we avoid the conflict altogether. But even more indicting is this reality. At its root, anger is idolatry, putting self in place of God. James chapter 4, verse 3, look at it again. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Who is that person living for? They're living for themselves. And so go, so go back. I'm going to invite you back into my car, okay? I'm driving down the interstate. The sign says 70. The guy in front of me is doing 25. I'm on the interstate. He thinks he's in a parade. And at that point... What am I actually saying in my heart? Now, you got to think about this, okay? I am demanding my way for how, ready? God is providentially running his universe at that moment. I am saying I want it my way and I don't like the way God is doing it right now. And you know, we don't just see that in moments of frustration in the car. We see that in trials, right? We see that in suffering. We see that in moments of hardship and pain and affliction. We say, I don't like this. I don't want this. Sinful anger is actually saying in our heart, my kingdom come, my will be done. I am demanding a difference. I am demanding my way. We are, as it were, competing with the very throne of God for how life should go. And this is why anger is so dangerous. Anger is really arm wrestling God for control of your life. That's what we're doing. And, and, and again, that's why it's, even though it's common, even though we would all say, yeah, yeah, I struggle with anger, we need to see that anger, even though it's common, is more serious than we realize. 
We're not submitting to and delighting in God's wise, fatherly disposal in every condition, which is how another Puritan, Jeremiah Burroughs, describes contentment, the, the opposite of anger. It's submitting to and delighting in God's wise, fatherly disposal in every condition. And, and this, is, this is significant because if anger is really idolatry, if anger is really saying, I want to take God's place, if anger is really saying, I want my will to be done, I want my kingdom come, I am demanding my way, then there's only one right course for dealing with anger, and that is repentance. It is repentance. It is humbling yourself before God. It is saying, God, I am rebelling against your providence. I am, I am fighting against your will, and I need to repent and turn away and submit myself to you and trust you. Another feature of all this that, that is, is really challenging is to recognize that people and circumstances do not make us angry. You notice, look back at the text. James chapter four. Uh, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Answer, my spouse. Is that what he says? My kids. It's gotta be here somewhere, right? Is that the next chapter? Where is that? It's gotta be, it's gotta be my circumstances somewhere. But, 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 but hear me when I say this. Your circumstances are not the cause of your anger. They are only the occasion where your angry heart is being revealed. That is the indicting, humbling, convicting truth of Scripture. People in circumstances do not make us angry. They are only the occasions in which our hearts are revealed. Uh, you guys know the name John Newton? The hymn writer wrote Amazing Grace and, and many other hymns. Uh, many Christians don't know, even though they, they know him for his hymns, they don't know that he actually was a pastor and had a very significant uh, pastoral um, uh, time in, in England. And um, he, he was best known, not so much for his preaching, but his letter writing that he would engage in with, with so many people. In fact, if, if you want something, just a devotional book to read with your Bible, pick up uh, there's several volumes now uh, of Newton's letters. They're just wonderful balm for your soul as, as Pastor Newton ministers to hurting people in his congregation and, and even beyond. And he's got this great letter. He, he's talking to somebody about their affliction and their trial, and he uses this picture that, that's so legendary. He, he, he says this. He says, um, he says, our hearts are like nests of vipers. We don't know the vipers are there until the rod of affliction or hardship arouses them and then they hiss and they show their venom. What a picture, right? The human heart, Pastor Newton is saying, is like a nest of vipers. We have these pleasures, these wants, these ungodly desires and they're just lying in wait under the rock, so to speak. And then God brings affliction, he brings hardship, he brings struggle, and, and Newton says that's like the rod that sticks under the rock and makes the snakes all angry, and then they pop out and we see their ugliness. You say, is Mr. Newton saying I got snakes in my heart? Yeah, that's what he's saying. We have snakes of our fallenness, snakes of our ungodly desires, snakes of indwelling sin. And what God is doing in moments like this 
He's using the circumstances and people of our life to expose the depravity of our heart. Why? Because he hates us? Because he wants to say, yeah, see how bad you are? No, no, no. Because he loves us. He loves us. When God exposes our hearts, he, he intends it so that we can see it and repent and receive more of his grace so that we can be transformed in that moment. And thirdly, uh, letter E, without quick, consistent repentance, anger turns into bitterness and resentment. I, I need to show you this. Flip back, if you're in James, flip back to Ephesians chapter 4 for a moment. Um, one of the things that I have the privilege of doing is a lot of marriage counseling, and, and I also have the privilege of doing weddings also. It's one of the things a pastor loves to do is to do weddings and to counsel and shepherd people. And, and you know, in all the weddings that I've done, and even more, all the weddings that I've seen, I have never met a bride or groom that as they stand before the pastor, as they come down the aisle, um, they're just repulsed by each other. You know, they just can't stand each other. Every bride and groom I've seen, and maybe this is true for you, they can't wait to be with each other. They, they, they are, they've been longing for this. They're ready to, you know, finish up and go on their honeymoon and spend their whole life together. And they just, they love to be together. They can't stand the thought of being apart. They, they want to do that. And as a pastor, I contrast that with in some cases, as little as six months later, they're sitting in my office, he pulls the chair to the right-hand side, she pulls the chair to the other side, and they can barely stand to be in the same room with one another. And you know, as a shepherd, I scratch my head and I go, what happened? How do you go from, I can't stand to be without you, to I can't stand to be around you? And, and that used to bother me and puzzle me, and then one day, I found this verse. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, th this is on the heels of what we looked at this morning in Sunday school. Um, verse 26. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And I take that to mean, uh, the, the NIV actually translates it, I think, a little more accurately. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. I don't think this is a command to be angry. I think what he's saying is, when you're angry, don't continue to sin by letting the sun go down on your anger. Uh, the guy who did um, our premarital counseling for my wife and I uh, had a great reminder based on this verse. He said, never go to bed with a conflict unresolved. That's a biblical thing to do. You say, well, what if I don't do that? What if my spouse and I regularly go to bed angry? We don't resolve our conflict. We don't forgive. We don't confess. What happens? Look at the next verse. And do not give the devil an opportunity. Now, this is profound. In every couple that I've found that they have that issue of he's over here, and I'm going, what happened, right? You know what the common denominator is? They were letting the sun go down on their anger. They weren't confessing. They weren't forgiving. And I think this verse explains why there's such a radical change. Because they have opened up the door to give the devil an opportunity. That, that, that's what's gone on. That's why so many even Christian marriages are eroding and, and crumbling. Because they are not doing what this verse says to do. And it gives Satan an open door of influence. Okay? So that's... Uh, that's something of how anger starts and uh, something of how we understand anger. 
The other thing we need to see is that people that are hurt or sinned against are often occasions for anger turning in to bitterness and resentment and a desire to retaliate. That's why Paul warns us in Romans chapter 12 to never take our own revenge, but to leave room for the wrath of God. God's role is to make all things right. Our role is to return good for that evil that we receive. The Proverbs tell us that anger in the heart is developed, reinforced, and refined into a skill through two main influences, the example of others and consistent practice until it becomes habitual. Proverbs 22, 24 says, do not associate with a man given to anger, lest you learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. And chapter 19, verse 19 says, a man of great anger will bear the penalty, and if you rescue him, you'll only have to do it again. So anger is reinforced in the example and also in the consistent practice of doing it over and over. Okay, now, let's talk about how we apply all this, okay? How do we come alongside and help a friend in light of what we've learned? Well, the first thing the Bible would call us to do is to make ourselves a fit vessel for ministry by removing our own logs of anger first. The reality is, if we come alongside to try to help somebody who's struggling and that person sees that we are ignoring the same problems in our own life, are they going to take us seriously? They're not going to take us seriously, are we? So we talked about this morning about exemplary discipleship. Exemplary, disi- exemplary discipleship means that I am watching over my own heart first. I am dealing with my own sins first. I'm coming alongside not as a perfect friend, but as a friend who is genuinely walking with the Lord and practicing repentance and confession in the areas of struggle. That, that's a prerequisite here for helping somebody. The next thing you want to do when you're trying to help somebody with sinful anger is ask lots of of questions. Get get information. Discover your friend's pattern. Mark this down, guys. Every person's anger follows a pattern. It does. You will find that anger tends to cluster around certain people, certain circumstances, certain situations, even certain times of day, certain occasions. And that is very, very helpful to know that because as you come alongside your friend, you need to get to know the unique fingerprint of their anger. You say, well, how are you going to do that? You're going to listen to them. You're going to ask questions. You're going to learn what's going on in their life. Things like, uh, with whom am I angry? What context am I likely to get angry? Under what circumstances am I likely to be angry? How long am I angry? Do I tend to blow up, clam up? Am I a volcano or slow simmer? Do I deny it? Do I attack a, attack a substitute? Do I leave? What do I do? So listen, talk. The Proverbs say this, he who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. Let me translate that for you. If you try to help your friend before you've really listened to what their problem is and understood something of, of it, you are a fool and are probably gonna give bad counsel. So we listen first, we ask questions. The next thing we need to recognize is that our friend probably has a faulty view of his anger. We need to teach our friend what the Bible actually says. I find that when I try to talk to friends about anger, and even when I'm arguing with myself about my anger, that I want to view my anger as a justified and normal response to the difficult circumstances 
and the mistreatment of others. And you know what? I found out that kids do this too, right? I, I've, I've got two boys and a girl, and uh, it, it's, it's, like, um, it's like the flower between like the two thorn bushes, okay? My daughter is this sweet, quiet person that likes to climb my tree and read books all day, and she's the peacemaker of the family. And then there are my boys, and they just, they just go at it. It doesn't matter what it is. I think about 37% of the time their fights are about Legos, but uh, they can fight about virtually anything. And when I try and engage my boys in this sort of conversation, they want to say, no, it was my brother's fault, and, and no, he deserved it, and there's justification. Um, and we need to expect that people are going to have a faulty view of that. In fact, some people even think that not expressing or what's called validating anger is the real source of people's problems. So, uh, I grew up in a home uh, of three boys, actually, where if mom thought that me or one of my two brothers was getting a little bit upset, a little bit, a little bit worked up, we had what we called the yellow pillows. These were little pillows, they were like sort of rectangular pillows about this high. It was foam rubber with a vinyl sort of zipper coating around it. And uh, man, th these were great. We, we built forts with these things. You know, we, we played, uh, you know, NFL tackle drills with these. But when mom thought we were getting a little bit uh, too upset, she would say, go outside and punch the yellow pillows, right? That was the convention of the day. You went and you expressed your anger. And uh, that reminds me of, of this little cartoon. You know, I used to direct all my anger inward, but since I met Derek, all that has changed. Uh, expressing your anger, right? That's, that's, uh, that's how we do it. Or uh, this was really good. This was an actual sign on a church that somebody saw. Uh, anger management class postponed for classroom repairs. So I guess the didn't go so well um, as we are trying to express our anger, uh, apparently not in healthy ways. So that's how that works. So our friend is probably going to have a faulty view of anger, so we want to teach them the biblical view. It's not a, a good and justified response. Validating and expressing is not the biblical way. Yet the Bible clearly and consistently calls people not to be angry. You know this verse, right? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. I am convinced this is what the Apostle Paul did. He went and got his Greek thesaurus. He looked up the word anger. He noted all the synonyms, and then he wrote them down in verse 31. He exhausts the Greek language to make this point. You identify every and all of your instances of anger, and you repent of them. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And in fact, believers are called to a radically different response. Jesus said this. You talk about radical? Here's what he said. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Paul tells the Romans, do not be overcome by evil don't return evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, be real with me for a minute. Is that easy to do? Is it easy to show good to somebody that has hurt you? To somebody who has abused you? 
to someone who has taken advantage of you. Or maybe it's not you. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your aging parents that were taking advantage of somebody. Is it easy to do what God tells us to do, to return good for evil? The answer is no, it's not. And that's why we find in these instructions that we cannot respond the way that God is calling us to without going to him in humble dependence and saying, Lord Jesus, I do not have this within me. Will you give me grace to respond to this person the way you have responded to me? And that's the picture, right? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice and instead be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. We forgive and are kind and forbearing and loving because God in Christ has treated us that way. And I just want to encourage you, if you're struggling with bitterness or you're struggling with resentment or you're helping somebody who's struggling with those things and they just, they just don't have it in them, there is only one thing that will soften our bitter hearts and give us the grace to go love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us and return good for evil, and that is to contemplate and meditate on the amazing grace and compassion and love that God has shown us, his enemies, in Jesus. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, what did he do? He died for us. And that meditating on the cross and his grace it is the theological heat that melts the cold heart of our bitterness and our resentment. Here's another thing you need to know about helping people. Anger has to be unmasked. Anger is like a costume party. You know, people don't say it. People say, I don't deal with anger. I'm frustrated. I don't deal with anger. I'm just getting a little hot under the collar. I'm not angry, I'm ticked off. I'm not angry, I'm just having a bad day. I got up on the wrong side of the bed. I'm hurt, I'm irritated. Anger is a costume party, and when you're dealing with somebody or you're dealing with your own heart, the first thing you have to do is pull that mask off to see anger for what it really is. And if you wanna take a step in your sanctification, when, when you're identifying anger in your own heart and you have to go to your spouse or go to your kid and confess it, don't say, you know, dad got a little frustrated back there. You look your son or your daughter square in the eye and said, I was angry with you. And that must have been very, very hurtful to hear daddy say those things to you. I am so sorry, sweetheart. Will you please forgive me? You label sin what it is. You use the terms that God uses in the scripture to describe what you do. Confession is specific. We call sin what it is. And we also wanna call our friend to take ownership and responsibility for his anger. We wanna help him to stop blaming others or circumstances and instead focus on removing his own logs. Uh, We we were talking at lunch today about counseling and marriage counseling and whatnot, and um, I am not an expert marriage counselor. I've done some over the years. But I have noticed a pattern. 
And I'm gonna show you something that's really significant. If you wanna really make a turn in your struggle with anger, and if you wanna help your friend to do that, I wanna show you what I think is one of the most significant places in scripture to help us with this. Turn back to Matthew chapter seven. Matthew chapter seven. This is uh, the, the log and speck uh, principle. Jesus is writing in Matthew chapter seven, Sermon on the Mount, he's speaking, and he turns the corner to talk about how we think about our own sin. Look, look at verse three with me, Matthew chapter seven. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What's Jesus telling us? He's telling us that our fallenness is like a carnival mirror. Have you noticed this? In our fallenness, we are prone to magnify the sins of others and to minimize our own sin. That's, that's the point here. When actually the reverse is true. And what Jesus is saying here is that before you go and try to help somebody else, before you come alongside your spouse or your child or your coworker or your friend, he says, you first remove the log in your own eye and then you will see clearly to help your brother. You know what that means? This is, this is so profound. If you are ignoring sin in your heart, if you are not dealing with your own sin in your heart, not only will you be ineffective in helping others, you're not even seeing clearly. Sin harbored in the heart distorts everything that you're seeing in life, every way that you're interpreting in life. And here's what I found. When couples come for marriage counseling, they all come like this. Pastor, my wife is the problem. Pastor, my husband is the problem. That, that's, that's how they all come. And I have found that if a couple will humble themselves and do what Jesus is saying here, they say, you know what? Yeah, you know what? My wife does have some issues, but the reality is I'm the biggest sinner in my marriage. And yes, my husband has some issues, I know that, but the reality is I'm the biggest sinner in my marriage. If they will humble themselves, deal with their own log first, then they see clearly. Jesus says this brings clarity. And even more than that, you know what else it brings? It brings humility. And humility is contagious. Have you noticed this? When you confess your own sin, that, that ice, that coldness, that defensiveness, so often in the other person begins to melt as well. Humility here, and remember what James tells us later on in the passage we just looked at, that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And it may be, guys, it may be that the reason you are stuck in your walk with God is that there is something in your heart that you need to confess. You can be honest, we stop blaming other people for our problems. We take ownership and confession as Jesus says here. And you know what? God says, I love to give grace to the humble. And we need his grace to change. We wanna help our friend expose the lies and the lusts of his anger. Uh, if we had time, we, we could look back at James chapter one where James tells us 
that lies are behind all of our lusts. And you know that because all you have to do is watch a commercial, right? I have a perfectly good vehicle that is at the DFW airport right now. But when I'm watching football on Sunday afternoon and, and the commercial comes up for the Ford F-150 Texas edition, and they're telling me, you know what? I'm not gonna be happy till I get this truck. You know, and there's the happy family in the cab and they're towing a brand new boat behind that and, and it's like, man, I want that life. It's deception, isn't it? Our desires lie to us. We, we tell ourselves things that aren't true and, and that's what leads us into sin. So when we're helping our friend, we're, we're asking questions like this. What did they want that they didn't get? Was there something that they wanted too much? Was I telling my, what was I telling myself in the moments leading up to anger? What do I think I deserve? What do I think I expect? What do I think I need? And, and what we want to do then is expose those lies. This, this is so profound. You can look it up later in James chapter 1. Your temptation and my temptation gets its strength from the lies we believe about our desires. The more I believe what is wrong in the moment of temptation, the more strength temptation has. And that's why James says you have to unpack the deceits behind your lusts and desires. And as soon as you bring truth into the equation and it exposes the lie behind what I'm wanting or what I think I deserve, guess what? The temptation dissolves. Temptation gets its power through the deception behind our wants. That's why the Bible is always saying things like this. Renew your mind. Think on things that are true. Um, think on these things. So then what do we do? We lead our friend to confession and repentance. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We, we do confession and repentance over anger always to God and sometimes to appropriate people. Luke 17 says... Uh, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him, right? We need to go and confess our sin to others as well as to God and seek forgiveness. And then what we want to do, anger, like all sin, must be replaced in order to be defeated. Uh, you will never change if all you try to do is to stop doing the wrong thing. We change when we replace the wrong thing with the right thing, okay? So let's take the verse that we've already looked at. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Then he forgets one. And all malice, repent, confess that, turn away. But see, that doesn't fix it. Then you have to replace it, right? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgives you. We replace anger with kindness. We replace bitterness with tenderness. We, we replace judgment with forgiveness. Anger has to be repented of and replaced with righteousness. And I'm going to quote your pastor here. I don't know where I picked this up from, Rick, but I quoted this from you somewhere in a source. You have to purge your personal pantheon of idols. That sounds like Dr. Rick Holland, doesn't it? Purge your personal pantheon of idols. And that's how we grow and change. And then we want to work with our friends to develop a specific battle plan, a specific plan. Things like memorizing, whoops, memorizing helpful Bible verses, identifying the personal pattern, developing a plan for righteous responses. You know where all sin, the battle for sin, do you know when it's won? 
The battle for sin is not won in the moment of temptation. It's won on your knees that morning as you commune with God before you start your day. You renew your mind. You ready yourself for the day. You pray for grace. You anticipate struggle. You say, you know what? I'm going to be in some traffic today, Lord. And I know that's going to be a battle. And I go into the day prepped and ready to respond in righteous ways. We want to quickly help our friend to stop and repent. You know, this is what people do. They'll make some progress in their anger, and then they'll get angry, and then they'll go right back to pretending they weren't angry. Oh, that wasn't angry. That was just being frustrated. And and that's the thing, guys. If you want to make progress in anger, if I want to make progress in repenting of my anger, you have to own it every time it happens. And I'll tell you, there will be times when you know what's happening in your heart and no one else around you knows. And that's still an occasion for repentance. We stop and repent. We don't pretend it didn't happen. We don't ignore it. We confess and seek forgiveness quickly. Sometimes keeping a journal can be helpful, an anger journal. And that's just, that's just making entries about the occasion and context of anger so you can learn more about your patterns. Monitor your thoughts and your self-talk. Um, we're, we're talking to ourselves all the time in our inner man, and we want to repent and catch ourselves as soon as we begin thinking angry, sinful thoughts. We want to watch for other vices that accompany sin and make sure that we seek forgiveness. And then really, the final thing we want to do here is establish anger, countering, righteous, promoting habits. All right? Too far. There we go. Establish anger, countering, righteous, promoting habits. What are those? Focusing on God's provision and plan in the midst of difficult circumstances. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe Romans 8, 28? Do you believe that God is working all things together for your good and His glory, verse 29, to conform you more to the image of His Son? Do do you believe that? Okay, one of you believes that. Does anybody else believe that? Okay. How can that transform an occasion for potential anger? You stop. There I am in my car. He's going 25. I want to go 70. And I stop and I say, wait a minute. Maybe this isn't an occasion for frustration. Maybe this is a moment where God wants me to learn to be more patient with my neighbor. Maybe that's the good that he's doing. Maybe this is an occasion for me to learn to love my neighbor who's not driving quite the same way that I want him to drive. We, we, we see the good that God is doing in the moment, and that helps us to not respond in anger. We remember God's role when injustice occurs. Romans says, vengeance is mine. God says, God will make every wrong right. It is not our job to take God's role in executing justice over everything we see that's wrong in the world. We help them to learn to return good for evil, Um, We overcome evil with good. That's a great thing to do with your friend. You're talking about that problem person, that problem situation, and just talk to them. You say, is there something good that you could do in response to that person? Could you return kindness for their anger? Could you return goodness for their overbearing uh, practice towards you? And then finally, we learn to practice thankfulness and learn to be content 
in all circumstances. Paul says, I have learned the secret in every and any situation to be content. You know, we know it in Philippians chapter 4, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. You know what I found out? It's really hard to be angry and thankful to God at the same time, right? Learning to be a thankful person will help squash and vanquish anger from our hearts. Well, may God give us grace to come alongside friends, to open the Word of God, to minister to them, and to try to help them to apply the gospel of Jesus to things like sinful anger in their lives. Let's pray.